Father, if you enable us by your Spirit to behold the wondrous mystery of Christ this morning, then we cannot help but be changed. The power of the cross is sufficient, Father, to redeem and sanctify, and as you promised in this passage, glorify your children. That you will, through Christ, bring many sons and many daughters to glory. We've gathered here to worship you. You are worthy of all glory and honor and power forever and ever because of who you are. Independent of the saving work of Christ, you are worthy of worship. And yet how amazing, Lord, that you would consider man and that you would, through Christ, bring us into your kingdom. We want to, during this time, be rightly in awe of who you are and what you've done in Christ, that we might be encouraged that our high priest right now, seated at your right hand, intercedes on our behalf, that through the cross he has secured our end, and that in that, Father, we would live very differently, that we as a people would live to love and to serve and in so doing glorify you. So we pray, Lord, that this is not just another Sunday. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this time with your spirit as the word is proclaimed, that you would use a sinner like me to bless my brothers and sisters in a mighty way. We know that our flesh cannot receive it, but the spirit can. And so we ask that he would in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Um, I, am, I am very thankful you're here. Um, it's always good to gather as a family. Mo- most of us have a chance, usually during Thanksgiving or Christmas, to see people we haven't seen in a long time. I have three brothers that live in the area, and I don't see them often, but we get to see them at Christmas and Thanksgiving. It's always so good. And what an incredible blessing that God, according to his sovereign decree, says, I'm going to have my family gather at least once a week. And they're going to sing together, and they're going to pray together, and they're going to hear the word, and they're going to take communion. And what a great blessing to our church that we get to have a meal. So good, my beloved. So good that we can cultivate family like that. Um, we We are in Hebrews. We've made a run at it. We've started off. It's hard book. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like I'm dying in my studies, so please be patient with me. This is so hard. Um, I pray it's not that hard on you. Um, if you're not in Hebrews chapter 2, please open your Bibles there. We're going to be looking today at verses 5 through 13. Again, looking at some Old Testament passages that are a bit cryptic, and so I'm going to try to make my way through them and by the power of the Spirit not totally confuse you, but hopefully shed some light on what's being said here. The author spent all of chapter one making sure we understand the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the royal son who inherits everything. He wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of everything. He wants us to know that this particular son, the eternal son of God, 
is the conquering king and the eternal king and the promised king of David who now sits upon his throne. The author of Hebrews wants to make sure that and as we move through this particular book today, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, that we want to listen to Jesus. We want to listen to Jesus. And so he goes to great lengths to ensure that we understand the position and the power of the Son of God. Because as he speaks and as he teaches, he teaches to the Son's priesthood. And so as we saw, as Pastor Kurt preached last week, he says at the beginning of chapter 2, after the supreme exaltation of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, he says in chapter 2, pay very close attention. Listen with all your might. Don't fall asleep. Don't get tired. Lest you drift away and neglect the Savior King who offers you hope. Lest you drift away. Now my beloved, I, you are a lot like me in that we, we struggle in the week. Temptation can get us. Sin can move us away from Christ. So I pray you're not of the mindset you say that would never happen to me. If you say that, you're already in great danger. Great danger. As he writes to likely these Jewish Christians under persecution, probably under Nero, he's trying to get them to understand that They ought not turn back to the old ways. You see, Judaism under the Roman Empire was protected. So you could be a Jew in Rome and not be persecuted. But this new Jewish sect, this strange aberration called Christianity, did not have the same protection. And so many Jewish Christians were experiencing extreme persecution and death. And so the author of Hebrews wants to encourage them He wants to encourage you. He's telling them as he tells you, stay the course. No matter how hard it gets, stay that course. When your marriage is on the rocks and you've lost your job, when the children have gone astray and you find each day harder and harder to get up and get out of bed, the gospel here in Hebrews says, stay the course. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. The creation, fall, redemption, restoration story has always included a savior king and his name is Christ. And that story has always included God's people who will, according to this passage, be raised with Jesus and seated on the throne and rule with him in glory and honor. That's the story. It's God's story. It's the true story. So you can deny it. You can fight against it. You can push against it. It does not matter. It will not change. It will not change. And so he says pay much closer attention. Because the author of Hebrews knows what you already know. If you miss the Savior, if you miss the central character of the story, you miss the story. And if you miss the story, you miss eternity. If you miss Christ, you miss the story. And if you miss the story, then you don't know why you're here. You don't know what your purpose in life is. You don't know where you're going to end up if you miss the Savior. And so he says to you, he says to me, I say to all of us, by grace, let's pay close attention. Amen? All right. I'm going to try not to be so excited. I listen to myself. I try not to. I listened to one of my tapes the other day. Well, it's not a tape. Listen to how old I am. 
It's not a tape, right? It used to be tapes. <laughs> and I couldn't stand the way I sounded. So I'm, I'm going to try to, I, I, I'm not angry. I'm not, I'm excited. So please don't hear my excitement as anger. But I sounded angry. I didn't like the way I sounded. So I'm going to, I'm going to try hard to not sound angry. <laughs> number one, man's failed mission. Number two, Christ's successful mission. Number three, Christ and man's family victory. Man's failed mission, Christ's successful mission, and Christ and man's family victory. And so let's, let's look at this first point, man's mission. Every single one of us, explicitly or implicitly, ask and answers three questions every day. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? What is my origin? What is my purpose? And what is my end? We all ask it every day in how we live out our lives. And how we answer these questions will not only determine how we live now, but how we will spend our eternity. Some philosophers have argued, and I would agree, these are the three most important questions in life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Verse 5 begins with the word for, and every time you hear that or therefore, you know it's a transition. And the author's reminding us, he's reminding the readers about where they are going. Remember, they're being persecuted. He's saying, you got to look out. You got to look out beyond your life, beyond this century, beyond this millennium. In verse 14, he says, you are those who are going to inherit salvation. And then he said in verse 3, chapter 2, those who will inherit such a great salvation. Look at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking, but to whom? To mankind. To mankind, the world has been given. In other words, he's saying as great and as magnificent and as powerful as the angels are, they're not co-heirs with Christ. They're not going to inherit the heavens and the earth. They're not going to sit with Jesus on the throne on the new, in, on the new earth. And that's been the plan from the very beginning. From the very beginning, listen, God intended mankind to rule with him on this perfect earth to have glory and honor and power with Christ. Always been the plan, always been the story. And so the author wants to remind his audience of that. And I so want us to be reminded this morning as well. And the author's great. He's a, he's a good biblical exegete. He doesn't say, this is my opinion. He goes back to the Old Testament. And he says, this is what the word of God says. So listen intently. If you remember, the author's been striving to quote scripture because he wants God to speak into these people's lives. And so we will do the same. And he quotes here from Psalm 8. It was a Psalm of David. And in the Psalm, you probably know it well, David talks about the origin of man and the destiny of man, where we came from and where we're going to end up. He says, look with me here, verse five and six. We've been created a little lower than the angels. Destined by God to be, in verse 7, crowned with glory and honor. And in verse 8, everything subjection to our feet. It has been testified somewhere, verse 6, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And so David, you know where David's going. This is Genesis chapter one. David is recalling the original plan by God that Adam and Eve would be vice regents. God never intended the world to be ruled independent of mankind. Genesis chapter one, God said, let us make man in our image, Father, Son, Holy Spirit speaking after our likeness and let them, mankind, have dominion over the earth and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have what? Have dominion. Have dominion. In other words, before the fall, before Genesis 3, before sin entered, it was God's plan he purposed from the beginning for man to rule over his sinless creation. You have an important part, a very important part. And the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 to not only remind the reader, I mean, these are such tender verses, what is man that you are mindful of him, of the son of man that you care for him, in verse 6, I had a lot in here that I had to take out because that wasn't the central point, but it's so good to meditate on. Who are we that God would be mindful of us and who are we that God would care about us, but he does. He knows you and he cares about you and he has purposed you. Listen, he has purposed you for glory. He has purposed you for honor. He has purposed you to rule. I don't know what your life plan is. That's bigger. I mean, I don't know what your goal is. School, work, family. This is infinitely bigger. Glory, honor, and rule. The glorious end for the Christian. The answer to that third question, where am I going? Is glorification with Christ. It's being honored with Christ. And it's ruling with Christ. Not independent of the Son but with the Son every step of the way. Now, if you, don't, if you don't know this, I pray that you do today. If you don't understand this, I pray that you do today. Because if we miss our purpose in life, again, if you don't know your identity, who you are, or your purpose, why you're here, you can't live as you were created to live. And the great danger of that is missing it for all eternity. It doesn't just end here. If you miss your purpose now, you miss it forever. And that is in that place we call the lake of fire. Are you with me? Do I sound angry? Please say no. During his acceptance speech for best actor at the Oscars last week, Joaquin Phoenix revealed his confusion over his identity and his purpose. He said, quote, I see commonality. I'm talking about the fight against the belief that one nation, one people, one race, one gender, listen closely, one species has the right to dominate. And then he gives this example. He said, we, speaking of mankind, feel entitled to artificially inseminate a cow and steal her baby, even though her cries of anguish are unmistakable. Then we take her milk that's intended for her calf and put it in our coffee and our cereal. Much discussion on this last week, these dialogues. 
he failed to make the distinction that the author of Hebrews is striving and laboring to make. That the species of mankind is distinct. The only creature purposed by God to have honor and glory and rule with Christ are those made in his image. Image bears, distinct. And because Joaquin Phoenix missed the identity and purpose for himself and all mankind, he missed the solution to man's fallen nature. He missed it. He ended his speech with this incredible transparency. I don't know if you saw it, but when you did, I hope you weren't angry. I hope you were heartbroken. Listen to what he said. I have been a scoundrel all my life. I've been selfish. I've been cruel. I've been hard to work with. Joaquin Phoenix could have substituted the I for the we, could he not? He could have said, we've all been scoundrels. We've all been selfish. We've all been cruel and hard to work with. In fact, he's only affirming what Jesus Christ clearly said in Mark chapter 7. For within the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He didn't know, but he's quoting scripture when he's talking about the depth of sin in his own heart. But then Joaquin Phoenix said this, listen. He said, I'm grateful that so many of you in this room have given me a second chance. I think that's when we're at our best, when we support each other, not when we cancel each other out for our past mistakes. Now listen, but when we help each other to grow, when we educate each other, when we guide each other to redemption. I I was floored. And this is extraordinary. He stands up and he confesses his sins before millions and argues for the need to be redeemed. And what broke my heart, and I'm sure it broke yours if you were listening, is that in the entire speech, he missed the person. He missed the person that has the power to redeem. Hebrews in the Bible clearly reveals this, that without Jesus Christ, there's no redemption for mankind. There is none. How can Joaquin Phoenix or Hollywood or mankind guide each other to redemption without a redeemer? The blind cannot lead the blind. Sinful hearts cannot redeem other sinful hearts. Finding our commonality and forgiving one another of our past mistakes does not bring redemption for man before a holy God. Our being redeemed to positions of honor and glory and rule before God must come from God. Joaquin Phoenix revealed the depth of sin and the need to be redeemed, but he missed the Savior. It must come from God. Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Christ's mission. Man's mission was to rule. Man introduced sin and we failed. So Christ must come. If these recipients were in fact being persecuted, if they were experiencing the harsh persecution under Nero and many being put to death, then their experience was not one of glory, it was not one of honor, and it was not one of ruling. It was one of humiliation, of suffering, and death. 
It was a far cry from Genesis chapter one. And I believe the author anticipates their objection because they're hearing about this glory and this honor and this dominion over the earth in the midst of them being imprisoned and murdered. And they must have been saying, well, this is not our life. This is not our experience. You probably have thought the same, maybe even this day. So he anticipates, the author anticipates, look at the latter part of verse eight. He makes sure they understand. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. At present, mankind does not rule, have dominion over the earth. Not because God's reneged his promise, but because man has rebelled against God. You see, the promise of glory and honor and dominion in the very beginning that God gave to mankind was contingent upon man living in a right, loving relationship with God. In other words, God had always planned to rule over the heavens and the earth with mankind, but that required man living, loving, and submitting to God as God. And that makes sense, right? If God intends us and planned for us to rule with him, then it would require our being in submission to him. He is God. As soon as sin entered God's good, perfect, sinless creation through Adam and Eve, mankind no longer wanted to serve with God or under God. Mankind wanted to be like God. And in so doing, we set in motion all the sin and all the difficulty and all the struggle Joaquin Phoenix was talking about. Everything is not in subjection to mankind because rather than ruling as God created us to rule, we rule as we want to rule. Lords over our own lives. Lords over our nation. But because of this sinful rule, we've introduced all those things that we struggle with, the things that we talk about. If not for sin, there would be no coronavirus. There'd be no national debt. There'd be no homelessness, no disobedient children, no failed marriages. We would not know war. We would not know famine. We would not know persecution. We wouldn't know loneliness. We wouldn't know discrimination or racism or child abuse. Every single ill that we experience in this life is a result of our advocating the rule that God gave us to have dominion over his sinless earth and sinning instead. Now, my beloved, if this is where the story ends, then I don't know what you're doing here because this is a bad ending to the story. If God leaves us in our sin, if this present evil state is all we know and all we will know, if our only hope, as Joaquin Phoenix said, is to forgive one another and stop using milk in our coffee, we're in trouble. I mean, if our hope in redemption is to stop stealing milk, we're in big trouble. I think you know that. Look at the latter part of verse 8 again. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is mankind. And then we get to verse 9, and you have one of those glorious biblical words. It says, but we. But we see him, Jesus Christ, for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There's the gospel. I mean, we look around, we do. Even in the church, we look around and we think there's dominion. I feel like everything's out of control. And the more that man tries to control, the worse it gets. We look around and we don't see everything being in subjection to the righteous rule of mankind. That's a true statement. But the Christian sees something else. We don't want to deny reality. We don't want to look upon the world and and look at it through rose-colored glasses. Things are very difficult. The sinful world is a broken place. Lots of people, including you, are hurting. But we know there's more that we can see. Remember the dialogue that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? And he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot what? He cannot see the kingdom of God. But if you've been born again, you can. You can see that this isn't it. The fallen world isn't it. The kingdom has come in Christ. And so you can see the king, and you can see the kingdom, and you can, by his grace, have great hope. Oh, can you have hope. Look at verse 9 again. You see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's his incarnation, by the way. Isn't that amazing? The creator of the universe, for a little while, became man, becoming lower than the angels. Didn't stay there. You can see by faith his incarnation, and you believe it. You know by faith that he lived that sinless life, and he died a sacrificial death for sinners like us. You can see by faith that he was raised from the dead. You believe by faith that he ascended into heaven. You can see and you believe that right now he sits enthroned. He's received the crown of glory and honor. And you believe that and you see that. And so you can look upon all the pain and all the suffering and all the broken relationships in your own life. And you can say that's not the whole story. Through faith. The Christian can, in the midst of great suffering and persecution, we we can raise our eyes to heaven. We can gaze up like Stephen did in the book of Acts, Acts 7.55, as he's being stoned to death. And he says, see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We can see that now. We don't have to be subject to the sin of this world. You've been set free if you're in Christ. Your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the great second Adam, is ruling at this present moment. As crazy as things get, and as much as you feel like your life is falling apart, Christ sits on his throne. And if you know Jesus, that should cause you to be settled. There should be a peace and a joy. You can say, yes, amen, Christ reigns. He reigns because of the suffering of death. We're going to talk about this more next week, so I'm not going to do too much on this. Because he was sinless, he could take the wrath of God in place of someone else. Because Christ was sinless, he was able to give his life out of his love for the Father and his love for his people. Look at the latter part of verse 9. So that, listen, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone giving sinners, deserving of death, real hope in the midst of our difficult lives. Real hope. He tasted death. That's a Semitic phrase, and it kind of gives you a a sense of the magnitude. I mean, you can even, 
when you taste something, when something is bitter or something is sweet, in tasting death, it was pointing to the very harsh reality of the Savior King climbing upon the cross and being crucified for sinners like us. That God would be pleased to accept the sacrifice of the Son. And He was. The ultimate sacrifice that by grace, those who repent, those who believe, those who look to the Christ can in turn be saved and never, listen, and never taste death again. We can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. I love how he says it with such affirmation. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord, who? Jesus Christ. You have no fear of death, my beloved. Not at all. The death of Jesus Christ offers real redemption. It offers Real forgiveness for those who come to him. So what happens? Instead of those latter two questions, why am I here and where am I going? Being self and death. God changes that answer for you in Christ. We go from why am I here, which is to live for myself in isolation, to do what is best for me, to living for God in the glory of Christ to love and minister and serve others. God changes that answer in Christ for you. He changes the last answer for you in Christ too. Apart from Jesus Christ, you say, where am I going? Your end is destruction. It is judgment. You will come before a holy God with all your sin and it will be laid out and you'll be rightly adjudicated because he's a good judge and you'll be cast into the eternal fire. But God says, I'm going to change that answer for you. Where are you going in Christ? Where are you going in Christ? You say, well, I, <laughs> I get to go be with Jesus. That's the best answer. You get to go be with Christ. And not only just with Christ, you're going to be with him on the throne. And you, this is amazing, you're going to be glorified. You're going to be honored. You're going to rule with Jesus. Again, I would argue a much better ending than most of us have for ourselves. Whatever we think that ending might be. He makes sinners saved by grace inheritors of a great salvation. He reinstates us. Now listen. He reinstates us to the vocation we were supposed to have in the beginning before the fall. To be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. To live as image bearers. And to love and to serve and to care for all of God's creation. Now, the fallen world might mock you, and it might say, where, where is your dominion? Where is your power, church? Every day, God continues to bring more and more people into his church. Christ has secured your final dominion over the heavens and the earth. He secured that. And every day, God saves more and more people into the church, into the community of believers, and in saving more and more people and sanctifying them, they exercise the very vocation God gave them to do in the beginning. To love, to serve, to work. Think about it. Every time someone is saved by grace, they're sent back out into their communities to their neighbors and to their coworkers and to their teachers in the workplace 
And then they love and they serve and they minister and they sacrifice. And in so doing, God reigns. God reigns through the love and service of his own people. So I pray you're still with me. I pray that you see that man's purpose is to have dominion over the heavens and the earth. We failed in that by bringing sin in. We abdicated our our, our right position of authority. Christ came and his mission was to what? To reinstate us. To bring mankind back to a position of honor and glory by dying for our sins and putting us back into the family of God. I got one more point. Are, are you still up for it or should I just stop? Okay. Some of you look like you're done. All right. I haven't done very good about not getting too excited, have I? All right. Last point. What does that end look like? What does it look like in the end for us, God's children, and how should that impact us now, today? Last point. Christ and man's family, the victory we have together. Christ and man's family victory, last few verses. Verses 10 through 13 It's commentary on verse 9. 10 through 13 is a commentary on verse 9. Explaining, now listen, it seems a bit cryptic, but it's not. It's simply telling the church their new position in Christ. See, this is how it's going to be. This family, this church. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that's God the Father, For whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the purpose, should make the founder of their salvation, that's the son, perfect through suffering. It was pleasing to the father, whose purpose is to bring all glory and honor to himself, to create all that is seen and unseen. All of creation was made for God's glory. And it was pleasing to the Father to bring many sons and daughters like us into glory, to have the founder of our faith, who is Jesus Christ, made perfect through his own suffering. This was all pleasing and all proper. The word fitting there means proper or right. It was pleasing and planned by God that Christ should be made perfect through suffering. Now when you hear that, you know that it cannot mean that Jesus was made perfect morally Because he always was, always has been, always will be, is today, sinless, perfect. So this is not moral perfection here. This is a way that the author was drawing back upon the Old Testament. To make Christ perfect through suffering was to consecrate him, now listen, to the position of high priest. And we're going to spend the next several weeks fleshing out what that means and looks like. The author wants us to make this connection now, right? I mean, he said that that just Jesus Christ is the definitive word of God. He is the ultimate prophet. We saw that. He said this Jesus Christ is the king of kings, the promised king, the eternal king, the conquering king. And now he says, and also, he's your high priest. He's our prophet, he's our king, and he here is our high priest. He entered into the presence of the Father And even at this moment, he intercedes on behalf of his family. The phrase make perfect is used in the Old Testament to signify priests being consecrated to the priestly office. Leviticus 21 verse 10. 
The priest who is chief among his people, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the priestly garments. It's a consecration, it's a ceremony. Now, listen carefully. In order for Jesus to enter into the presence of the Holy God and bring many sons into glory, many sinful sons and many sinful daughters into glory, he had to intercede in a way different than all the priests before him. Not by the blood of animals, but by his own broken body and spilled blood on the cross. His consecration, listen, to the forever office of high priest to bring us into glory was distinct in that he, it wasn't sufficient to pour oil upon his head. Through suffering, Christ had to have his head struck with blows to his face. He had to be spat upon and he had to be crowned with thorns. And instead of putting on the priestly garments This high priest had to be stripped naked and he had to be adorned with a cross if he was going to lead sinners like us into the throne room of God instead of being girded with sashes as they were in the Old Testament. He had to be girded with nails so the ultimate priesthood would be his forever and you belong to him. Now you'll say, well, why? Why like this? Why couldn't that perfect man just receive the anointing from Mary? Why couldn't that perfect man just be clothed with the garments of the high priest and be our high priest? Every high priest had to be consecrated to serve in the presence of God. But the son's mission was more than that. It was not temporary intercession between sinful man and a holy God. It was not through incense. It was not through offering. It was not through the blood of animals. The son's mission was to look at verse 10. To what? Bring many sons to glory. That can only happen through the cross of Christ. Jesus had to be consecrated as our high priest through the cross so that his perfect blood could make us perfect. Right? He had to be consecrated through suffering that by the spilling of his blood he could consecrate sinners like us. So what? Remember, the purpose from the beginning was to rule with Christ, glory and honor and power with Jesus. But to get you there, he had to die first. To get us there. To bring us to glory. His blood had to be shed and become our covering so that we could become not slaves not even servants, not even angels, but that we might become, I want you to listen, and I'm gonna close, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in the family of God. Brothers and sisters in the family of God. Verses 11 through 13, the author of Hebrews is magnifying family. It's all about family. Look at verse 11. He wants us to get the magnitude of being brought into the family of God. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Jesus is the sanctifier. We're the ones being sanctified. And the author is saying, listen, you've been brought into the family. The one source is the Father. Christ is in the family. You're in the family. Sons and daughters to the same Father. 
So he says in the latter part of verse 11, that is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's a leveling verse, my beloved. It's a leveling verse. Although once sinners bringing dishonor and shame to our God and our rebellion against him through the cleansing blood of our Savior, we go from judgment to grace. We go from shame to glory. So by grace through faith in Christ, Christ is no longer ashamed. He's willing to bring you in and say, listen, this is my brother, this is my sister, part of the family. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Listen to this. I will sing your praise. It's a quote from Psalm 22. I don't know what to do with that. It's beyond me. My track record deserves shame before God. But that's not what my Lord and High Priest said he's going to do. Instead, he's going to take a sinner like me and a sinner like you, and he's going to bring us in the family, and he's going to introduce us as brothers and sisters. And he's not just going to introduce us. His joy is going to be so overfilled with our presence there, he's going to sing our praises. We sing to him, for he's worthy. He makes us worthy through his blood, and he's going to sing about us. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him, the Father. Christ is saying, I'm one with you. We're all in this together. We're all going to put our trust in the Father. And then he says, and behold, I and the children God has given me. And that's a quote from Isaiah 8, 18, where Jesus is saying, I'm the second Adam. This is a new humanity, and we're all in the same family. We're all brothers and sisters. He's the one leading us to glory through his own suffering. I want to close with one application question, just one. Because I really want us to get this. I had several, and I crossed them all off last night. Here's the question for you. Ready? If Jesus speaks lovingly of us to all those who have already been redeemed, if in the midst of the congregation of God's people... Jesus Christ, the Son of glory, sings your praises, then shouldn't our love for one another in the church be the same? If this is how God sees us in the family, and this is how God praises our glory in Christ in the family, ought we not love one another in that same way? The answer, of course, is yes, we should. But as Westerners, I I don't believe we understand what Christ is saying here. We're so trained to think about our independence and our autonomy and our personal choice and our freedoms as Americans more than the interdependence, the community, and the family of God that Christ has made through his blood. Brothers and sisters, 
in the family of God. Look at verse 12 again. Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Now as Westerners, we don't value the family like the first century Mediterranean culture did. We think, well, that's good. I want to be a brother. I want to be a sister. I want to be in the family. That sounds good. That sounds fun. You know, we can go to the park and play football and have picnics. The first century Mediterranean audience hearing the author tell them you're a brother or sister of Jesus Christ and the family of God would have sent them to the moon. Ecstatic over a statement like that. You say, well, why is that? Because in the Bible, the word family, it's the primary metaphor used for the church, the family of God, the primary one. And he uses this example because the most intimate, this may surprise you, the most intimate relationships in the first century, and certainly in the first century church, it was not between a husband and a wife, and it wasn't between a mother or a daughter or a father or a son. The most intimate relationships were in families, between siblings. You think, how is that possible? I mean, I don't know about you, but I had three brothers, and I would say that was not my most intimate relationship. But then it was. That was the height of intimacy that could be expressed. Brothers and sisters of the same bloodline, listen, with the same father, had the greatest intimacy, the greatest allegiance, and the greatest love. In Mark chapter 10, I want to point something out. When Peter wanted to know, remember after the, the story of the rich young ruler, Peter wanted to know, he says, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. What's there going to be for us? Jesus said to him this. Now listen, what he starts his list off with. Jesus said, truly I say to you, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Why did he start with brothers and sisters? Why not wife? Why not children? Why not grandchildren? Brothers and sisters put at the end. Why? Because the height of intimacy, the expression of intimacy in the first century was amongst siblings of the same father. And so he's highlighting that loss to Peter. He said, listen, you're going to get your brothers and sisters back. You're going to get them back. Why is this so important for us in this hyper-individualistic age to understand two reasons? Number one, when you hear Jesus call you brother or call you sister, he could not express then, and I hope we get it now, a greater intimacy and a greater unity with you by calling you brother or sister, in the family of God with the same Father. It meant so much more to them than it does to us, but I want it to mean so much more to us than it does now. You were once the lost sibling. You were once the prodigal son. You rebelled and you turned away from your father. Through Christ, you've been redeemed. You've been brought back into the family into the family of God, reinstated as a brother or sister in God's house. And just as the father went out and he grabbed the son and he hugged the son and he said, bring the royal robe, bring the signet ring, throw the sandals, kill the fatted calf. We need to party. My son is back. Jesus does the same with you. Jesus was the good big brother in the, par uh, in the parable of the prodigal son. He didn't go inside and pout. He rejoices. 
He tells of the brothers and sisters about you. He sings your praises in the congregation of God. This is the highest expression of love Jesus can say, I have for you. Highest expression, brother or sister. But there's something else. There's a second thing that I believe this truth should have an impact on us. And that's how we relate to one another as blood relatives in Christ. I believe, my beloved, and I don't think this is an overstatement, that it should radically redefine your relationships with your blood-bought blood brothers and sisters in this church. In the Gospel of Matthew, Mary and Jesus' brothers came to talk to Jesus, remember? He's in the midst of ministry, and they came... And they said, we want to speak to him. Now, mothers and brothers and sisters would have had top priority. Culturally, the honoring thing for Jesus to do would have been to stop and go to them and address them and talk to them. He doesn't do that. He wants to reprioritize the highest human relationships in the church. He wants to bring them from out there into here. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 12. You've heard it once, hear it again. While he was still speaking to the people, Jesus, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak with him. His reply is insulting. He replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who is my brother's? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, drawing upon the family intimacy again. And so he pushes back hard against the cultural norm, even at the expense of embarrassing his mother and his brothers. Because to be identified as a brother or sister in the family of God is to be called into the highest, most intimate relationship known to man. Higher than marriage, higher than children, dare I say, and this is hard to say, higher than grandchildren, higher than yourself. In our Lord's day, he was trying to reprioritize their highest love in blood family to the blood-bought family in the church. That's not our struggle today. We don't have an allegiance to our family like they had in the first century. Our allegiance is to ourselves. We're good Westerners, right? We make choices, marriage, vocation, location, where we're going to live based upon what we think is best. So Jesus is trying to get, for us, love of self to love for the brothers and sisters in the bride, in the church, to reprioritize that we might love as Christ has commanded us to love. Very practically, that means putting your physical, spiritual, and emotional well-being below your brothers and sisters. To have your brothers and sisters' needs here in this church be a top priority for you. You heard it read once, and I'm going to read it again because it's probably the most powerful teaching on this from Matthew 5, the final judgment. Christ is talking about the final judgment. This is Jesus speaking now. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. Listen to how practical. 
I was in prison and you came to me. And then all the righteous will answer, when did we do these things? We never did this with you, Lord. And then Christ said, Matthew 25, verse 40, the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The least brother, the least sister in this church, Christ says, when you love like that, you love me. And that's why we can hear 1 John 3.18 and not be shocked. When he said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And in so doing, we reveal ourselves to be sons of God. How do you know you're paying close attention? How do you know you haven't already drifted away? How do you know God has changed those last two questions? Why am I here and where am I going? How do you know this? How do you know your end's going to be glory and honor and rule with Christ? So I made a profession of faith. Pastor, you baptized me. I own a Bible. I go to church. I got a certificate. Self-examination questions and then I pray. Are your affections, listen, saints, this is no small matter for us. Are your affections for your brothers and sisters in Christ greater than your affections for your biological family? Are they? Are the affections you profess for your brothers and sisters in Christ validated by your actions towards them? Do you know the financial needs of those in this church? Are you working to meet some of those financial needs? Are you aware of the spiritual or emotional or physical needs of those brothers and sisters in this church? And are you striving to minister to them, to meet them? Are you praying for one another? Are you praying fervently for this family? For people in this church to be encouraged when they're discouraged, to be set free from sin that binds? for wisdom, for faith, for fruit. In this new family of God, Jesus said, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. His love was real, it was practical, it was saving. Do you tell others about the great love you have for the brothers and sisters in this church? Do you tell others? Or are you ashamed in silence? Do you sing praises about each other to others in this church? Brothers and sisters in the family of God? Christ sings about you. Ought we not sing about one another? My beloved, your high priest has reinstated you to live and love and serve like this. 
He's reinstated you to that vocation to have dominion in love starting right here in this local body. He intercedes on your behalf and he will bring this to pass. And by God's grace, we will strive as one body to truly love one another in this way. We don't want that to be a trite phrase, love one another. We want it to be in action and in truth as God brings you, his sons and daughters, to glory. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be a people that rejoice in the station that you have now given us to have dominion over this place, to live as those who have been glorified and honored through the blood of Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with our church and that we would exercise this type of supernatural love through the gospel of grace, one to another. That when we hear Jesus call us brother or sister, we would want to do the same here. We would want to say, this is my brother, this is my sister, of whom I rejoice, and then minister to them in that way. I pray, Lord, you would give us serving hearts, that we would, not, we would reach out, even today, even as we have lunch and we'd speak to our brothers and sisters to find out their needs, their financial needs, their spiritual needs, their physical needs, and then we would act upon that, that we might express that love as Christ has called us to and as we ought to want to. I pray, Lord, that you would bind us together in love as we prepare to take communion, that we would see the great unity that you brought through your Son, Jesus Christ, and then exercise that here. Let us be that living testimony to the world of the power the gospel has to change sinners into family. In Christ's name, amen.